of chapter 18. Hear the word of God. When Jesus had spoken these words, he went out with his disciples across the brook Kidron, where there was a garden which he and his disciples entered. Now Judas, who betrayed him, also knew the place, for Jesus often met there with his disciples. So Judas, having procured a band of soldiers and some officers from the chief priests and the Pharisees, went there with lanterns and torches and weapons. Then Jesus, knowing all that would happen to him, came forward and said to them, Whom do you seek? They answered him, Jesus of Nazareth. Jesus said to them, I am he. Judas, who betrayed him, was standing with them. When Jesus said to them, I am he, they drew back and fell to the ground. So he asked them again, whom do you seek? And they said, Jesus of Nazareth. Jesus answered, I told you that I am he, so if you seek me, let these men go. This was to fulfill the word that he had spoken, of those whom you gave me, I have lost not one. Then Simon Peter, having a sword, drew it and struck the high priest's servant and cut off his right ear. The servant's name was Malchus. So Jesus said to Peter, put your sword into its sheath. Shall I not drink the cup that the Father has given me? So the band of soldiers and their captain and the officers of the Jews arrested Jesus and bound him. First they led him to Annas, for he was the father-in-law of Caiaphas, who was the high priest that year. It was Caiaphas who had advised the Jews that it would be expedient that one man should die for the people. This is the word of the Lord. Let us pray. Lord, may the words of my mouth and the meditation of our hearts be acceptable in your sight, for you are our rock and our redeemer. Amen. So what should a Christian do when faced with injustice? I realize, of course, that the terms justice and injustice have become political footballs in this time. And they are often bandied about with a cavalier disregard for logic. Often it seems that people use the word justice to mean anything that's good for them and injustice to mean anything that's not good for them. Anyone who has had children know that kids are hyper-attuned to justice when it cuts their way, but oblivious to all fairness when it cuts the other way. Split a chocolate bar with a kid and they will tell you if their portion is one milligram less than yours. But if by mistake you give them three quarters of the bar, they won't mention it. They'll put it down to good karma. 
So when I ask, what should a Christian do when faced with injustice? I'm not talking about that sloppy, careless thinking. I'm not talking about people who are unwilling or unable to abstract from their private interests or their individual point of view. I'm talking about clear-cut, we can all agree upon it, injustice. I'm talking about a total disregard for fairness. I'm talking about riding roughshod over due process and the rule of law. I'm talking about people who say one thing and do another. I'm talking about the powerful crushing the powerless because they can. I'm talking about things that are plainly wrong, 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 and you and I and everyone know it. What should a Christian do when faced with that kind of injustice? You don't have to live very long before you suffer your first injustice. We suffer injustices in our families of origins. Cruelty from siblings and neglect from parents. We suffer injustice in school. Favoritism in the classroom and bullying on the playground. We suffer injustice in our workplaces, sexism and racism and ageism and nepotism and cronyism, cutting off opportunities that we need. We suffer injustices in our marriages, spouses who are always taking and never giving. We suffer injustices in our churches. Often it seems that people misbehave more in church than they do in other places because Churches will put up with you. And we suffer injustices in civil society. We live in a great country, but not everyone gets a fair shake in this land. I mention all of these things just to say that injustice is a regular part of life. When it comes along, we shouldn't be surprised. But it makes sense for us to think about our strategy, uh, our Christian strategy for dealing with injustice when it does come along, because surely it will. The 14 verses from the Gospel of John we read this morning begin John's account of the passion of Christ. And I don't know what we can call the arrest and the trial and the execution of Jesus, if not injustice. No matter how you slice it or dice it, what happened to Jesus was just plain wrong. And you don't even have to be a Christian to see that. Jesus' way of dealing with injustice is a lesson by example for us about how Christians should respond to injustice. We'll take a look at that example. And we will also touch on some of the verbal teachings of Jesus where he talked about justice and injustice. So this sermon is going to have three parts. Part one, I will talk about how we as Christians should respond to injustice. Part two, I will talk about how we as Christians should actively pursue and create justice because it doesn't happen by itself. And part three, I'll talk about the role that mercy plays in the entire Christian life as we respond to injustice and as we work to create justice. So the sequence is going to be injustice, justice, and mercy. So as Christians, how should we respond to injustice when it comes our way as surely it will? I see two imperative responses to injustice on the part of Christians. Christians. 
First, we bind up the injured. And second, we turn the other cheek. First, we bind up the injured. In the story of the Good Samaritan, we have the story of a man who, at his own expense, takes care of a man who's been mugged and left on the side of the road to die. When someone suffers because of someone else's injustice, we need to be quick to step in and to help to relieve that suffering. In the parable of the sheep and the goats in Matthew chapter 25, where Jesus talks about judgment day, when some people will be sent to eternal reward and others sent to eternal separation, Jesus talks about rewards for those who have visited him in jail. Jesus says, I was in prison and you came to see me. Now in those days, prisoners were not fed by jailers. The prisoner's own family would come to the jail and feed them. So imagine the situation of being thrown into jail and being forgotten by the outside world. And since we're talking about Jesus, we have to imagine that any jailing in this case would have been unjust. Jesus never sinned. So if in this parable we find Jesus in jail, we know that it's because of an injustice. So what do we do when we see this injustice? We relieve the suffering of those who are injured. We bind up their wounds. We visit them in jail. These days, prisoners don't need someone to bring them food, but they do need company, and they do need a connection with the outside world, and they do need hope for a post-prison future. Some people in prison are there through a failure of our legal system. Not everyone who is convicted is guilty. In 1989, we had the first case of someone being exonerated after having been convicted because of new DNA evidence. And since that time, 351 people have been exonerated of crimes that DNA proved that they could not have committed. And in 40% of those cases, the actual criminal was caught after the innocent person had been freed. 351 people is, of course, insignificant when... When compared with the total U.S. prison population, we have 2 million people locked up in this country. But it is important to recognize that no legal system is perfect, and some innocent people are behind bars. There are organizations like the Innocence Project, which work on behalf of innocent prisoners in the United States. That is an appropriate Christian response to injustice. A number of people here at HVPC support a Christian organization called International Justice Mission. They work in 17 countries in Latin America, Africa, and Asia to help protect innocent and vulnerable people in legal systems that don't work so well. The IJM doesn't fight local legal systems. Instead, they work respectfully with those systems to help them produce fairer outcomes. That is an appropriate Christian response to injustice. And the IJM is an appropriate full-time calling for any Christian willing to relieve the suffering of others in the name of Jesus. These are ways in which we bind up the injured. Second, we turn the other cheek. Turn the other cheek might be Jesus' most familiar saying, 
But I'm willing to bet that it is his least obeyed. In the Sermon on the Mount, at Matthew 5, 39 through 41, we hear Jesus say these words. Do not resist the one who is evil. But if anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to him the other also. And if anyone would sue you and take your tunic, let him have your cloak as well. And if anyone forces you to go one mile, go with him two miles. Now since I've been a pastor, I've heard all kinds of reasons why we shouldn't take Jesus seriously in this passage. Reasons having to do with the right to self-defense and constitutional law. All of that is beyond my expertise. But what I am confident about is that what Jesus meant here is actually very clear. I'm not saying that it's easy. I'm just saying that it's clear. Jesus' answer to injustice is not retaliation. I know that seems crazy. I know it seems unnatural. I know that our instincts tell us to strike back when we've been struck. But that's not what Jesus taught. And in case you're wondering, this idea that we shouldn't strike back not only appears in the Sermon on the Mount, it appears throughout Scripture. It is a widespread biblical idea, Old Testament and New Testament, Gospels and Epistles. Here's a sampling. Of what scripture says. Proverbs 20, 22. Do not say, I will pay you back for this wrong. Wait for the Lord and he will avenge you. 1 Thessalonians 5, 15. Make sure that nobody pays back wrong for wrong. 1 Peter 3, 9. Do not repay evil with evil or insult with insult. On the contrary, repay evil with blessing. Because... To this you were called, so that you may inherit a blessing. Romans 12, 17 and 19. Do not repay anyone evil for evil. Be careful to do what is right in the eyes of everyone. Never avenge yourself, but leave it to the wrath of God. For it is written, vengeance is mine. I will repay, says the Lord. Vengeance and retributions on the part of those who have been injured, is not a biblical response to injury or to injustice. I understand, of course, that we want to strike back when we have been injured. I understand that we want there to be consequences when we've been done wrong. But God's word repeatedly and unambiguously and in a number of different contexts says no. Our job is never to repay evil for evil. It is never our job to retaliate. A mob with torches and weapons comes to the Garden of Gethsemane to arrest Jesus. What's his crime? I don't know, healing people, feeding people, announcing the kingdom of God. And this mob of Armed men with torches, this outrage in the Garden of Gethsemane unfolds in a way that we get to watch it. This ignorant mob is motivated by religious hatred. It's a completely disgusting scene of armed men descending upon a poor rabbi and his students. And then good old Simon Peter 
fearless Peter, the one bold one among the disciples in the face of this overwhelming mob, he draws his sword and he cuts off the ear of Malchus, servant of the high priest. And we think, yes, justice. Talk about a guy who had it coming. Talk about a bum who got what he deserved. Too bad it hadn't been the high priest himself, but he was too big a coward to go out and arrest Jesus, and so he sends his henchmen. And one of them got it good. Isn't that the natural human response to righting a wrong, to settling a score, to standing up to the injustice of a torch-wielding mob? That kind of response is natural enough. But how does Jesus respond to these anti-injustice heroics of Peter? This story, by the way, appears in all four Gospels. And in three of the Gospels, we hear what Jesus said afterward. John eighteen eleven, Jesus says, put your sword into its sheath. Matthew 26, 52, Jesus says, put your sword back into its place, for all who take the sword will die by the sword. Luke 22, 51 says, no more of this. Darn it, Jesus. It may not be fun. It may not be the way Hollywood writes the scripts. It may not be what our boiling, injustice-incensed blood wants, but the consistent biblical teaching is that we are not to resist evildoers. Not only should we not resist them, we should actually bless them and pray for them. How crazy is that? In the midst of the outrageous injustice of his dubious arrest at night by a mob of torch-wielding hooligans, Jesus offers no resistance and he rebukes his one disciple who does. Now maybe this situation that Jesus faced seems so beyond our imagination that it really isn't helpful for us in everyday life. Maybe you've never faced a torch-wielding Mob. But all of us have families. And anyone in a family has at one time or another faced what feels like an injustice. Much less dramatic than this life or death encounter, but still very real. And the message is the same. We do not return evil for evil. We do not engage in retribution or revenge. We do not dish out consequences. Instead, we seek the good of those who've injured us and we bless those who make our lives hard. So let's turn to the second part of this sermon. Christians should actively pursue and create justice. Maybe this is too obvious to say, but injustice is never a viable option for a Christian We are always called to do the right thing, the decent thing, the fair thing. We are called to behave justly. This summer in the adult Sunday school class, by the way, some of you don't go to the adult Sunday school class. You're missing out, okay? The Sunday school class is really very good. 
Oh, and I'm teaching today. <laughs> this amazing class this summer has been working through the minor prophets, which are the last 12 books of the Old Testament. And one of the themes that comes up again and again in the minor prophets is justice. Over and over again, God speaks through these prophets to call his people back to justice. Justice means paying workers a fair wage. Justice means not cheating widows and orphans. Justice means fair treatment of aliens who are living in your country. Justice means treating poor people the same way you treat rich people in a court of law. Justice means not trading in your wife when you are old and fat to get a younger wife. The minor prophets weren't saying anything that the law of Moses hadn't already said. God had already communicated his standards of justice to the people at Mount Sinai. The job of the minor prophets is to warn the people about their sins and to call them back to observing the law. God promised two things. Number one, he promised that he would be a defender of the defenseless. And that means if we take advantage of people who are weaker than us just because we can, then we are making ourselves enemies of God, which is not a good idea. And number two, he promised blessings and rewards for those who live righteous, justice-filled lives. Sometimes I think people are fooled into thinking that there's an advantage to being a cheat or a chiseler or getting away with what you can get away with. But it's actually a bad bargain. Because if we do that, we miss out on God's favor and God's blessing. So let me close by talking about mercy in the Christian life. Justice is about fairness. It's about getting what we deserve. It's about giving to other people what they deserve. The law of Moses is all about justice, making sure that no one is cheated, making sure that no one is taken advantage of. As followers of Jesus, we are called to live lives of justice, and that means we should always give people their due. Paul says in Romans thirteen seven, pay to all what is owed to them. Taxes to whom taxes are owed. Revenue to whom revenue is owed. Respect to whom respect is owed. Honor to whom honor is owed. Justice is good. And justice is important. And we should never allow ourselves to behave in any way that is less than just. But having said that, let me also say that there is actually something better than justice. There's something higher than justice. There is something more godly than justice. There is something more Christ-like than justice. And it's called mercy. Malchus, the servant of the high priest, has gone down in history. We know his name today because Peter cut his ear off with a sword. Malchus, a minion of the single man most responsible for the death of Jesus, gets his ear cut off by Peter, hot-blooded Peter, who in his righteous rage defends an innocent man. Malchus is a scumbag. And he deserved what he got and more. It can be argued that Peter dished out some rough justice in the face of an incomprehensible injustice. But here's what I want you to see. Justice is not 
good enough. After Jesus tells Peter to put his sword away, the Gospel of Luke gives us a little detail that the Gospel of John leaves out. In Luke twenty-two fifty and 51, we read these words. And one of them struck the servant of the high priest and cut off his right ear. But Jesus said, no more of that. And he touched his ear and he healed him. Jesus in the midst of a mob of torch-wielding thugs on his way to a kangaroo court where he will be mocked and humiliated and spat on, a court where the high principles of Jewish and Roman justice will be abused and abandoned as this innocent man is railroaded and condemned to death. Here in the heart of this drama of the absolute depths of human evil and injustice, Jesus shows mercy. Jesus heals one of the men who's going to be responsible for his death. Justice is giving people their due. Justice is getting what we deserve. But mercy is getting what we don't deserve. Mercy is getting better than we deserve. Malchus deserves the sword. Malchus deserves eternal damnation. How dare he threaten the Son of God? But Jesus gives him mercy and Jesus heals him. This whole miserable business of going to the cross and dying was how Jesus gave us mercy so that our sins might be blotted out. Yes, the demands of justice must be met. The law of God stands forever. But Jesus pays the price for our sins himself so that the demands of God's justice are met and we are set free and we are pardoned and we are healed. Justice is important. Let us always pursue justice. But mercy trumps justice. And you and I are called to that higher way. That means when we suffer injustice, our response is not a sword, but a healing hand. Some of you might be thinking, oh, I don't know, Pastor. If we go soft on this justice, if we dish out mercy willy-nilly, people will take advantage. People won't learn to do the right thing and the world will go to hell in a handbasket. There have to be consequences if decency and fairness are to prevail. I understand that theory. But I've also seen marriages die under the demands of justice. Husbands and wives who keep an account of what is owed and who did the dishes last. Couples who have a long memory, who keep a record of all the slights they've suffered. They want justice, but they lose their marriage. I've seen relationships among friends and work colleagues and church members. I've seen relationships drained of all of their life and vitality by the requirements of justice. I think pure justice might work with machines. Every time the piston rises to the top of the cylinder, the spark plug must fire. 
That's a kind of perfect justice. But we're not machines. We are spirits. And I hate to sound corny, but this corny truth is as clear to me as two plus two. We, as living spirits, are kept alive by mercy and by love. Mercy and love are the juice of life, and the unyielding demands of justice will dry us up. And suck the life out of us and out of our relationships. There is only one way to live. And that's with mercy. Mercy is life-giving. Mercy is forgiving. And mercy is life-giving. It's been my experience that the people who have the hardest time showing mercy... That the people who come to me demanding that justice be done, that wrongs be set right, and that the guilty face consequences. It's been my experience that those people have not yet fully experienced mercy themselves. We can't show mercy if we haven't received mercy. In many ways, that was the experience of my own life. Mercy is not my first instinct. I'm the guy who perceives an injustice and pulls out his sword. But God has shown me mercy. He sent me people in my life who didn't give me what I deserved, who didn't give me justice, but who gave me something better. They gave me mercy. And that's had an effect on me. God also convicted me of my own sin. While I am inclined to hold people to a standard of perfection, he held up a mirror to me. It's called the Bible. And in that mirror, what I saw of myself So let me offer an invitation to you this morning. If your heart is hard against someone who has injured you, If your heart is hard against someone who has hurt you, if you are bitter because of injustices that you've seen or that you've suffered, I want to invite you to let mercy trump justice. The hardness in your heart, the bitterness that you carry will suck the life out of you. And out of your relationships. So let it go. God has forgiven us more than we will ever be called to forgive anyone else. Let the demands of justice go. Get out of the judgment seat. It belongs to Jesus, not to us. One day Jesus will judge the world and he won't be asking us what we think. If you've never experienced God's mercy and forgiveness, then let me remind you that God loves you in all of your miserable sinfulness and that God laid down His own life to pay for your sin so that you could be free and so that you could be healed. In the middle of a howling storm, Of injustice. Don't take that baby from here. (laughs) 
Jesus stooped down and he picked up the ear of Malchus and he stuck it back on his head and he healed that miserable murderer because mercy trumps justice. And because mercy wins, let us pray. Father God, we love you and we adore you. We thank you that you love us more than we love you and that you are kinder to us than we are to others. Lord, I pray that your mercy and your forgiveness might be as real to us as the things that we see with our own eyes. Lord, I pray that we might feel your mercy, that we might know your forgiveness. And I pray that out of that deep well of your mercy, we might draw just a cup, just a cup of mercy to offer others. And I pray this in your name so that you might be honored and glorified, so that your will might be done in this world. Amen.